Good morning. Uh, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verse 58 this morning. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Uh, we're continuing our series titled, Who We Are. And today we come to uh, the fact that by God's grace, we are a church that is committed to doing the work of the Lord. That is, we are a congregation of believers who labor in the name of Christ, doing what he has commanded, and doing so with zeal, because our work is not in vain. We are a working church, or we are at least growing more and more into becoming a working church. So that's, that's our topic. We are a church who labors in the work of the Lord. Now, real quick, before I get going, just a personal note here. This has nothing to do with my sermon. I am nearly completely deaf in my right ear right now. Uh, so if I'm, like, just yelling, I apologize. Because uh, I, I have no sense of, of volume right now. So let's all settle in. This is going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, or if I, sp- if I speak too low because I'm afraid I'm yelling, that's what's going on today. So I feel a little odd. Uh, but, okay, so we are a church who works, right? That's the topic. Let's get back in. We're a church who labors. Um, Now, many people think that it's only the job of the elders and the deacons to do the Lord's work, uh, but that's not true. You won't find scripture to support that. Uh, While it is true that deacons and elders have been given legitimate authority within the church and by virtue of their offices have certain tasks assigned to them by Christ, while that is true, it is not true that they are the only ones in the church who are to work. Every single Christian has been given the responsibility to serve and work in the church of Christ and in their own personal lives according to the commands of the word of God. The, just real quick, the vast majority of all the commands, commandments found in the New Testament are not addressed only to office holders in the church. They're addressed to the church, right? All church members. Therefore, all the members of the church are to abound always in the work of the Lord, walking in obedience to his law, doing the things that he has commanded us to do. Each one of us, each one of us are to be committed to laboring for Christ. We're to be committed to working in whatever way the Lord leads us, with whatever abilities that he has blessed us with, with whatever opportunities that he grants to us. But why? Why? Now, I'd guess that most of us understand that we all do have a part to play, Right, that we all have a role in the general work of the Lord, but why should we labor? Right? What is our motivation? What motivates us? Oh, two things. First and foremost, and I always say this, our first motivation is that our Lord, God, and King tells us to. So if there was nothing else in Scripture, if there was no other reason, that's good enough, right? Jesus says to do it, so you do it. Why? I don't know. He just said to do it. Right? That would be enough. But he gives us more reasons than that. And this morning, I want to point out one huge reason that we are to be committed to doing the work of the Lord. And the reason that I'm going to be teaching uh, may be something that you've never really considered. Uh, And here it is. We are to do the work of the Lord because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. We're to do the work of the Lord because Jesus Christ is risen. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, what does the resurrection of Christ have to do with our working for Christ. Well, give me some time, and I think that you're going to see it, right? I think you're going to see that Christ's resurrection changes everything, including our work ethic in how we work for him. 
It, and listen, this isn't my idea, right? I didn't cook this one up. Uh, I'm not that clever, right? This is Paul's idea. <laughs> and so we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15 and seeing how this works. And in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, uh, we read a beautiful portion of scripture about the resurrection of Christ and also of the resurrection of the dead in general. And, and in that chapter, the apostle speaks about some of the implications of the resurrection of the dead. And one of those implications is that our work for Christ is not in vain. And in light of that, we should always abound in the work of the Lord. Right? So that's, that's where we're driving at this morning. So with that said, now if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God, please have mercy on us this morning. We are weak and needy, but you are mighty and you have all things. And so we know that for you to give to us will not diminish you. And so we ask humbly that you would supply us with strength and ability by your Holy Spirit so that we would understand your word. Help us to understand, to believe, to obey, and to gladly receive your word. Grant to us this morning a sight of the glory of our risen Lord and all that that means for us. Great teacher, we ask that you would teach us. Grant that our great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, would speak through the mouth of the preacher and that by the Spirit, the word preached would be made effectual to the hearers. Glorify yourself in us, triune God. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I hope you notice that the verse we just read, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it began with, the word, therefore. And that means that the apostle is coming to an, a conclusion to an argument, right? And in order to understand, it's my favorite phrase, some of you are already grinning, in order to understand what the therefore is therefore, we need to read the entire chapter. The entire chapter. And that's because Paul's argument concerning the resurrection spans the entire chapter. So you're welcome for just reading the first verse and then having you sit down. Because I'm getting ready to read to you the entirety, all 58 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. So you should open your Bible and follow along because it's not going to be on the projector. Because I also love OJ who's running the computer this morning. And I wanted him to be able to follow along as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul writes... Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. 
The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Verse 50. I tell you this, my brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do you see how it all fits? beautiful. Apparently, there were heretics in the Corinthian church who were denying the bodily resurrection of the dead. And so Paul wrote this whole chapter as a refutation of that heresy. Don't worry, we're not going to go through it line by line. That's not what we're going to do. We don't have time. (laughs) But I hope you notice that Paul lays out explicitly here that there are some seriously awful implications for us if there is no resurrection of the dead. That's the first half of his argument. There are terrible things if there is no resurrection of the dead. And that's what I want to focus on. So this first portion of this sermon is going to be very negative. First, Paul tells us that if the dead are not raised, then Christ himself has not been raised. Verses 12 through 19, we just read that. If there is no resurrection of the dead in general, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then we are all in serious trouble. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then Christianity is a lie. That's what Paul says. By the way, show me any other religion that just puts it out there. Here's how you undo our religion. That's what Paul says. If Christ has not been raised, it's all a lie. Paul says that our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain if Christ has not been raised. What does that mean, vain? It's worthless. It's smoke. It's a vapor. It's meaningless. It's all for nothing. It's all in vain. It's all a waste of time if Christ has not been raised. But it's not just vain. It's a lie. Why would I say that? Well, in verse 15, Paul says that the apostles were misrepresenting God if Jesus has not been raised. And that's because, as we read in verses 3 and 4, the gospel that the apostles preached consisted of what? Jesus dying, being buried, and being raised for the forgiveness of our sins. So the apostles were lying about God if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. If Jesus stayed dead, if there is no resurrection, then our faith is not only vain, it is a lie. It's a lie. And not only is it a lie, Paul says that we are still in our sins. This necessarily follows, doesn't it? 
If our faith is a lie, then we are still in our sins if Christ has not been raised from the dead. There has been no atonement made on our behalf if Christ is not risen. And so we still stand guilty under the wrath of God and headed for eternal damnation. More than that, those who have died believing in Christ have perished in their sins. They weren't saved. Everyone you know who's ever died a Christian has died in their sins and perished because their faith was in vain too. It's worthless and didn't save them. But why? Why is Jesus' resurrection so important? Well, the resurrection is so important because the gospel itself hinges on it. Right? It, it, it does. The, the, the resurrection is one of the core aspects of the gospel. You see, the resurrection of Christ signaled that God had accepted Jesus' death as payment for our sins. This is why the apostle can say in Romans 4 that he was raised for our justification. His resurrection is proof, follow me on this, his resurrection is proof that death had no intrinsic claim on Jesus. Why, why, why do I say that? Well, death only has hold on those who have sinned, for the wages of sin is death. But in the resurrection, Jesus Christ was declared to be free from sin, and so what must, what must we conclude about his death? It was a vicarious one. It must have been substitutionary. It wasn't for any sins that he had committed, but his death rather was for the sins of others in order to pay the penalty for their sins. And so Christ must be raised from the dead because he had no sin and so was a fit, spotless, perfect, blameless sacrifice for us. But if there is no resurrection, then Jesus has not been raised. And if he has not been raised, then his death did nothing for us. Because his death would then mean, and his staying dead would then mean what? That he is a sinner. That he himself is a sinner, and so was unable to take away our sins in his death. And if Christ had sin, then he is also not able to give us a perfect righteousness by faith. Because he didn't have any such perfect righteousness. The gospel itself, our salvation, hinges on the resurrection of Christ. Beyond that, the resurrection, according to Paul in Romans 1.4, it was the public declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. He was declared the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness when he was raised from the dead. Romans 1.4. Jesus' claims about who he is and why he came into the world were validated by the resurrection. His claims to divinity and power and authority over all things are verified by his resurrection from the dead. But if Jesus has not been raised, then what is he? He's a liar. If he's not been raised, then he has not been declared to be the son of God. He's a liar then. Not just a misguided man, but an evil liar who knew what he was telling people and knew that he was lying to them. More than that, he was a terrible blasphemer who claimed equality with God. That is, if he has not been raised. And that means that we've all been deceived. And we've all believed lies. If Christ has not been raised, then our religion is false. And hear me, everything you have believed is in vain. Everything that you have taught 
or rather have been taught, has been in vain. Everything we've committed ourselves to has been in vain. Everything that we have proclaimed and preached to others has been in vain. All of our Bible reading, your Bible reading has been a waste of time. Coming to church, you're wasting your time right now. All of your learning and studying and having 200 theology books, fantastic. You've wasted your time reading them if Christ has not been raised. Our faith is worthless because we've trusted in a liar. All of our dedication is meaningless. It's all garbage without the resurrection. Let's consider something else that is true if Christ has not been raised. Not only is our faith in vain and everything we've believed has been in vain, but everything we've ever done or suffered has been in vain. Everything you've ever done in the name of Christ, worthless. Everything you've ever suffered for Christ's sake is worthless and meaningless. Let me read to you verses 30 through 32 again. Paul says, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain? What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's getting quite personal here, isn't he? He's asking, why have I suffered so much? Why are we always in danger? Why does Paul suffer and metaphorically die each day for the cause of Christ if Jesus has not been raised? Consider all that Paul had endured for Christ. Let me, let me read a list. He gives a list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. He says, I have far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of, all, of my anxiety for all the churches. There's Paul's resume. That's what Paul did for Christ. That's what Paul suffered for Christ. Paul also mentions in our text in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, what did I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? What's that talking about? It's probably a reference to Acts chapter 19. You should go home and read it. In that chapter of Acts, we read that godless men stirred up the entire city of Ephesus into a riot in order to get Paul killed. They didn't succeed by God's providence. But these were idol makers, and they hated Paul because Paul is bad for business because where Christianity goes, it's really hard to sell idols. Paul had suffered so much for Christ's sake. He had suffered so much doing the work of the Lord. He had endured so much, and yet he continued to press on. But what value is it if Christ has not been raised. That's Paul's, Paul's point here. He says, what do I gain for suffering all of this? What do I gain for the work I've done if Christ has not been raised? And the answer is nothing. If Christ has not been raised, then Paul's suffering 
and his labor has been for nothing. If there is no resurrection, then there is no reward for Paul. There's no reward for this faithful service. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no life to come for Paul to look forward to. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no salvation from sin. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Paul hasn't gained anything at all, and it's been a waste of time. He's been deceived, and all of his life's work and suffering has been in vain. It's been futile. It's been worthless. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. Have you ever lost a friend because you've offended them with the gospel? That was a waste of time. Then you lost a friend for no reason. Have you ever given money to a church or a ministry? You should have kept it because your generosity was pointless. Have you ever suffered a loss of reputation for Christ? You did it for no reason. And you should actually abandon the faith and try to get your reputation back. Do you spend time teaching your children the faith? You're wasting your time. Have you ever been looked over for a promotion at work because in the past you've taken a stand for Christ? Well, that was stupid and you wasted a good opportunity with your employer. All that is true if Christ has not been raised. There is no reason to contend for the faith if there is no resurrection of the dead. Why? Because our doctrine is a lie and it just doesn't matter. There's no reason, hear me, there is no reason to deny yourself any sinful pleasure in this life if there is no resurrection. Why? Because there are no rewards in the life to come because there is no life to come. There is no reason to do anything for the sake of Christ if there is no resurrection of the dead. All the time, tears, effort, strategizing, money spent, skills employed, it's all worthless. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no sense to do or suffer anything for Christ. Why? Because this life is all we've got. As Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We should live like hedonists. We should live like hedonists and do as we please in all things, doing whatever will bring us the most pleasure and success here and now. We should do all that we can to enjoy ourselves now because in the end, nothing really matters. If the dead are not raised, then there is no life to come and there is no salvation. And so we ought to live for the moment because this is all we've got. So in summary, thus far we see if there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, all of this is a lie. He is not king. The church is a merely human institution. Our labor is worthless. Our suffering is meaningless. There is no salvation. And we ought to abandon ship and live however we please because ultimately nothing matters. But praise God, these horrible things are not true. Because Christ has been raised from the dead. And things matter. As a former, I'm walking away from my nose for a second. As a former atheist who had to stare down the void and see nothing matters. To now hear, but Christ is risen and everything matters. It all matters. 
In verses 1 through 8, Paul tells us that the, the gospel that Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead on the third day was foretold according to what? The scriptures. God himself said that this would happen. And then it was made manifest in that Christ was raised and then appeared. It was not secret. He appeared to the 12 and then to 500 others and then to Paul himself. And it's beautiful that Paul's saying, listen, guys, it's public knowledge that Jesus is alive. It's not done in a corner. There's over 500 eyewitnesses. Some of them have fallen asleep. Some of them have died. But many of them are still alive. Go ask them. Go ask them what they saw. It's not, it's not a secret, merely spiritual resurrection. No, they saw the resurrected Christ. It's public knowledge. And there is an empty tomb that is unexplainable except for the fact of the resurrection. To this day, I defy anyone to explain the empty tomb sufficiently apart from the resurrection of Christ. You produce his body, you end the religion, but they couldn't do it, could they? Why? Because he is not here, for he is risen. He is alive. There were eyewitnesses in that day who had touched and seen the risen Lord Jesus. I know we're about to have Christmas, but he is risen. He is risen indeed. And so, brothers and sisters, our faith is the one true religion. Jesus really is the Son of God. The gospel really is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus really is the only Savior. And what does that mean? A brief piece of application. That means that we all must run to him in faith. Believing that he lived, died, and was raised so that we might be saved through faith in him. There is no other name given uh, from he or under heaven among men by whom we can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. For he alone has made atonement by his blood and he alone was raised as the surety and proof for all who trust in him. He alone suffered the wrath of God in our place. He alone took the cup of God's wrath and drank it dry for us. He alone can save sinners, for he alone has been raised from the dead after making atonement for us. Our gospel is true. And it is the only message that brings salvation because Jesus is the only Savior. Brothers and sisters, we really have been saved. Through faith in Christ, we really have been saved. And the resurrection is our proof. And this means that our preaching matters. Doesn't it? Our preaching matters. Our doctrine matters. And it needs to be known and declared. And the world needs to hear it and believe, lest they die in their sins and be damned apart from Christ. Brothers and sisters, our faith is not in vain. Our religion is not pointless. Christianity is not a lie. The book in your hand is not a paperweight. It is true. Because Christ lives. But not only has Christ been raised, we also will be raised. Verses 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ was raised, Paul says, as the first fruits. That's harvest language. First fruits are the first bit of the crop. If you have first fruits, what does that mean? There's going to be more. The first fruits are a sampling 
of the harvest that is to come. So then there will be a harvest to come of those who are raised in glorified bodies like Christ's. And those who are to be raised to glory are those, Paul says, who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ, that is, those who are united to Christ by faith. Just as we are born in Adam and so must die in this body because of sin, because Adam sinned and died, so also we have been born again in Christ and so will live forever in resurrected bodies like him. That's what the apostle is saying here. We will be raised glorious. And as he says in the back half of 1 Corinthians 15, glorious and imperishable. We will be raised to bodies that are fit for eternal worship and the eternal enjoyment of God and the new heavens and the new earth that Christ himself will bring at his coming. Brothers and sisters, this means that there is a life to come for us. There is a life to come. And everything matters. <laughs> Praise God. Life is not meaningless. It matters because Christ lives. Everything we suffer matters. Because our Lord is alive. And since he is alive, he sees. And he sees and promises reward for us in the next life because we have labored and suffered for his sake you say, what, what kind of rewards? I don't know. But I know he is not a liar. What reward could there be that's better than just being in heaven? I don't know. But I know he's not a liar and he doesn't make empty promises. There are rewards for the faithful. And so every good work we aim to do really does matter. Because it will resound for all eternity to the praise of the risen Christ. The risen Christ who will reward his people. This life is not all that there is because there really is a life to come. And there really is eternal life to be gained as well as eternal punishment for those who do not obey the gospel of the risen Christ. Can you see the glory of this? What we believe, what we preach, what we suffer, and what we work for actually matters because our Lord has been raised from the dead. It's all true. It's all true. There are rewards. There is a judgment. There is eternity. There is a life to come. And what we do for the Lord matters because he lives. And now in light of that, we can get into our text. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It is in the light of the empty tomb, in light of the resurrection of Christ and the subsequent promise of our own resurrection that the apostle now gives this encouragement and exhortation. So allow me, to just, let's rehearse this. Since the resurrection is real, since we will be raised, since our faith is true, since our preaching is not in vain, since our doctrine is true, since our suffering matters, since our labor matters, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. But in what? Steadfast and immovable. 
means that we're to be immovable in our commitment to the truth of the resurrection. The gospel itself depends upon it. I hope you can see our zeal for the work of the Lord depends upon it. Our continued focus on eternal things depends upon the resurrection. Our perseverance in the faith depends upon it. So then we must be steadfast and immovable. We must dig our heels in on the resurrection. We must not be swayed. It's like Paul's saying here, and it's beautiful. He's saying, don't let anyone take your eyes off of this. Not for a second. We must not take our eyes off the truth of Christ's resurrection that has already happened. And we must not let our eyes be taken off the truth of our own future resurrection on the last day. Life in the world to come that we confess all the time in the Nicene and Apostles' Creed. Life in the world to come is to always be before our eyes. We're to contend for this. We're to set our eyes on the prize, convinced that it will happen. Like a mountain, we are to remain immovable on this because everything depends on it. Brothers and sisters, keep the resurrection of the dead before your eyes at all times because it means there is a life to come after this one. And being immovable in this, Paul says that we are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. What does abounding mean? It means excelling. It carries the idea of something overflowing, having a surplus, having more than you need. It's an idea of pushing forward and onward, doing more and more. John MacArthur put it this way, it's exceeding the requirements to abound. It's to exceed the requirements. It's doing more than what we may perceive as the bare minimum. To abound means to not grow lazy. That we are to always seek to be useful to Christ and his kingdom. We're to never be content with what we've done in the past. We're to never rest on our past work and our past accomplishments for Christ. But rather we're to always endeavor to do more fruitful labor for our Lord Jesus Christ. And a quick aside, brothers and sisters, how could we not desire to always abound in this work? Here's, here's what I mean. Our message is true. And our gospel really is good news for sinners. And people really are lost without it. And Christ really does promise rewards to the faithful worker. What other incentive do we need to do the work of the Lord? What other incentives do we need to abound in the work of the Lord? Do we not care about these things? Right? Are, are we so earthly-minded that we cannot be bothered with eternal realities? Are we so consumed with this life that we've forgotten the life to come? As the Puritans would say, are we addicted to this world? And so we don't see the incentive that's here? This is a gentle rebuke to those who think they need to do very little for Christ's cause. According to Paul, just the opposite is true. We've actually never done enough. We are to be overflowing with fruitful labor. Because our faith is true, because Christ is risen, because we've been saved by faith alone in Christ alone, because of the resurrection, because of all, uh, all of that, we are to work out of an unceasing gratitude to God and hope in that resurrection. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So just real quick, a lazy Christian is an absolute contradiction in the mind of the apostle. How could we do nothing? If Christ has been raised, we must always be abounding in his work. 
But again, what is the work of the Lord, right? That, that's a great, that's a question we have to ask. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Well, what is that? Well, hear me. Here, here, here's a, a decent definition. Whatever is done in the name of Christ to honor him that he has commanded, whatever is done for the increase and building up of his church, whether great or small, that is the work of the Lord. Our preaching and our teaching, our applying the word of God to every aspect of our lives, our allowing the word of God to come to bear on our politics, our killing of sin, raising our children properly, evangelizing the lost, time in sincere prayer, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, being generous to the church and to the poor, doing good works for others in the name of Christ, whatever they may be, loving our spouses as scripture calls us to, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, edifying one another in the body of Christ. You get the idea. Anything and everything that Christ that calls us to do, whether big or small, whether corporately as a church or individually in our own private lives, that is the work of the Lord, doing what God has called us to do. One commentator put it this way, the work of the Lord consists of an earnest desire to keep God's commandments and to do so out of gratitude for our salvation provided through his Son. As his love extends to us without measure, so our selfless deeds are done for him without measure. Amen. That's good. We don't do the work of the Lord. I need to clarify. We don't do the work of the Lord as if we're trying to earn salvation or anything foolish like that. That's heretical. Rather, we do the work of the Lord out of gratitude for the salvation that he has already given us through the death and resurrection of Christ. As God's love has come to us, and it is an eternal, measureless, undying, unending love, so also now our work in his name is to abound and overflow and excel and know no bounds. As we have been loved mightily by God, so we now strive to mightily love him in return. So Christian, real quick, ask yourself how you can be participating in the work of the Lord. What talents do you have? I know I'm thinking big, like not necessarily like in your personal life, but, but more corporately I'm thinking now. What, what talents do you have? What skills for building up the church? What knowledge do you have? that you can give to others? What ability to encourage do you have? What, what, what do you have and what can you do that, that, that you can leverage for the cause of Christ? What can you do to be always abounding in the work of the Lord? And listen, I know you have something, but I don't have anything. That, well, the Bible says that you do, so either you're a liar or God is. I'm going to guess it's you. You're the liar. You have something. God has given gifts to each one of us. There's something we can be doing to glorify him, declare the gospel, and be a blessing to the saints. There's always something that we can be doing in our personal lives. Small things. We don't have to swing for the fences on everything. It's small obediences to the Lord. That is doing the work of the Lord. Seeking to be useful to your brothers and sisters in the Lord for Christ's sake. Seeking to honor him in what you do. 
We are all to take part in this work. However we've been gifted, wherever God has placed us with whatever we have. And we do this, as the apostle says, with knowledge, don't we? Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You work with knowledge. We need to keep something always in our minds. And it's this. This is what we have to keep in our minds as we work. In Christ, that is because of his resurrection and all that that means for us, our work is not for nothing. You must keep this in your mind. In Christ, our work is not in vain. Our work of evangelism, personal sanctification, encouragement, brotherly rebuke and correction, our suffering for Christ, raising our children biblically, our self-denial, all the works that we do as believers are not in vain. Why? Again, because they're in Christ. Because they're for the glory of the risen Christ. Because they're going to echo through eternity. Because there's a life to come. Because there are rewards. Because life matters. Because Christ lives. They're not in vain. You know, so often in our lives as Christians, we get discouraged and we begin, we begin to believe the lie that our work doesn't matter. I don't think I'm the only one who's felt this. Right? Maybe we begin to think that our, our work doesn't matter because we don't see immediate fruit from our labor. You ever felt that? You evangelize and no one is converted. That you can see anyway. You evangelize and no one is converted. We try to help our brothers and sisters grow, but they just seem to be stagnant and not really care. We teach our children and they don't seem to believe. We work and we don't see the fruit of it. Or, or maybe the labor is so intense and, and we just grow tired and wonder if it's worth the sleep, sleepless nights and just the, the worry and anxiety of it all. Is it even worth it? It feels like it's all in vain. Like, why do I keep like, doing all of this stuff? I'm tired. Or maybe it's because there are so many opposed to our work that we begin to wonder, can they all be wrong and I alone am right? Is this all in vain? There are many reasons that we can begin to believe that our work is in vain. And I've only given you three examples. There are many other reasons that we feel discouraged. And we begin to think that our work in the Lord is in vain. But Paul tells us here to take heart and keep steadily working through it because it indeed does matter. And one day there will be a great harvest for all of our work. None of it is in vain if it's done for the risen Christ because there is a resurrection. There are rewards. There is salvation and many other things to come after this life is over. Please, please hear me. We may never see the fruit of our labor in our lifetimes, but that doesn't mean that it was in vain. Right? Or, 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 you, or you may think that the things that you're doing for Christ are insignificant. And since they're not some huge, like Billy Graham-style crusade, which, by the way, a lot of those were worthless, to be completely honest, if you talk to people who were there. But we think that if we're not doing something huge, then it's in vain. Or if we don't see the results of our work immediately, then it must be in vain. But please hear me, that's not true. Parents, faithfully raising your children can result in generations of Christians. 
Right? We don't believe that people are saved just because they're born to Christian parents, but nevertheless, look in the Word of God and what do we see? A consistent pattern that often, at least, not always, but often, children of believers become believers. God is often pleased to save people like that. Again, it's not a promise, but often people are believers because they were taught it at a young age and God was pleased to bless that way. You just being a faithful parent, you say, well, that's not a big thing. That's not in vain. If one of your children or all of your children become believers and they do the same as you did, and then their children become believers, and on and on, your faithfulness in a small thing that you might think is in vain could result in literally thousands of people becoming Christians over the centuries. And just real quick, I know I'm going to talk about eschatology for a second. We need to start thinking long term. We're not getting raptured out of here. That's not a true doctrine. Christ will come bodily, but we're not getting raptured out of here in the next five years. We need to start thinking generationally. In Jesus' parable of the virgins with the oil, it was the foolish virgins who didn't bring enough oil for the long night, and we're in the long night. It's going to be a while, and we need to start thinking long term, and your faithfulness in raising your children is not in vain. It's not in vain. You could be raising up faithful men and women who will continue to pass on the faith for generations to come, and that matters. Christian, you may never see the fruit of your evangelism, but that doesn't mean that once you're dead, what you've said won't take root in the person. Please hear me. There may be people that you meet in heaven whom you never realized repented after your death, and they may share the faith with thousands more. And your evangelism could, over time, bear fruit in hundreds or thousands of souls being saved as one saved person evangelizes another on and on for centuries. And when they tell the story, it, tra- it chains itself back to you. I'm not discounting that it's all God's work, but I think you get what I'm saying from a human perspective. You don't see the fruit of your evangelism now, but you don't know. It's not in vain. It matters. Christian, your generosity may seem small now, but it could bless someone in such a way that it makes waves that impact future generations for Christ. That matters. Teaching your Sunday school class or your small group, even though it's small and you feel like the kids don't understand or or you feel like that they're just not listening to you, you're still doing something that matters because you're setting the risen Christ before them and telling them the truth. And you're helping to lay a foundation that in time, if God blesses, he will put a great structure of faith on that foundation. And that matters. Christian, your suffering matters. Risking your relationships, your job, your reputation, all of that matters. And maybe it doesn't seem like it in the moment because all you see is pain and no fruit. But that doesn't matter because you're giving a witness to Christ because he's worthy. And he really is worthy because he's risen. And he will reward that. So it matters. Furthermore, who knows what God might be pleased to do through your suffering. The blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. That matters. Oh, Christian, do what matters. May God help us to do what matters. To always be abounding in the work of the Lord because it matters. Because our gospel is true. Because the resurrection of the dead is certain. Because Christ is risen, reigning, and will return. 
As Charles Spurgeon said, we are not fighting for a dead man's cause. We have a living, reigning king. Amen. May God help us to see that. So that in conclusion, my brothers and sisters, we will be a church that works. We are a church that works, and we will continue to be devoted to good works, sound doctrine, evangelism, holiness, prayer, all the rest. We will be a church that is devoted to abounding in the work of the Lord because we know in the Lord our labor is not in vain. I keep saying this throughout this series. We have not arrived. We have not yet arrived. We must continue. Having a new building is great. We have not arrived. Having a name that's not tacky from 2007, that's great. But we have not arrived. Being a 1689 confessionally reformed Baptist church, awesome, right? We have not arrived. Joining an, an, an association, great. We have not arrived. What have we done? We, by God's grace, have just positioned ourselves and are now better situated to abound even more in the work of the Lord. That's what all this has been for. That we can now even more abound in the work of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, we must not grow slack. We must continue. We must continue. And by God's grace, we will do just that. We will abound always in the work of the Lord. Why? Because it matters. Because it matters. Because the gospel is true. Jesus Christ is risen. We will be raised from the dead as well, and there is a life to come. Our work in the Lord matters. So then, my dear brothers and sisters, we will be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word that encourages us and hits a reset button in our hearts that focuses us on what matters. Thank you. Help us to be steadfast and immovable, always looking at the resurrection of Christ that is proof that our faith is true and always looking forward to the life to come and the resurrection of our own bodies that pushes us on to greater faithfulness and greater labor. Help us, Lord, to work and to work for you and to work like it matters because it does. Have mercy on us and help us. Glorify yourself in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.